All right, here we go. Parsha's Tetzave. So, um, last week's Parsha about Truma had a big emphasis, a big focus on the Mishkan that HaKadosh Baruch Hu came down to uh, reside inside of. And part of the Mishkan, obviously, was the Kohanim, the Kohen Gadol, at the forefront, we'll call uh, what they call in American terms the Big Kahuna, <laughs> literally, like running the show from the, from the Beis HaMikdash, and just to create, to create a, a picture in our minds of how the Mishkan and the Beis HaMikdash was, you know, we, we view it, I think, or I should speak for myself, we view the Beis HaMikdash like Bez Hashem, you know, we should have it today. We're all going to walk up, like, be the same, right? But we don't think, I, I, I don't usually frame it as, a, as like fully like realizing like who's going to be there. Who's going to be like, who's going to be in charge? I've shared an incident about my mother's Zechari Lebrach. That's worthwhile repeating. It's just got, it's got an important message about, howdy, howdy, <clears throat> about, you know, the, uh, how you never know long-term what's there. Many of you will remember this, probably brought this up in this forum, maybe in, in Perkei Avis. But when my father, Zechari Lebrach, passed away, my mother went to Menachem Abel. Uh, my father is a cardiologist, a very special man, a traditional Jew. And we didn't know much about his family. And my mother, out of Hakar Satov, really, for this cardiologist taking care of my father, um, went to be Menachem uh, It was about a four and a half hour drive from Baltimore. Uh, either way, he was sitting Shiva in Long Island. My mother at the time was living in Baltimore. And she had one of her grandchildren take her. And she comes in, and we, again, we didn't know much about his family. And he's sitting there, and he's got his two brothers next to him. One's with a long beard and a big black hat. Another one also just looked like a nice Jew like him. And uh, when, this, when the doctor sees my mother, he, he, he says, well, Mrs. Telner, I didn't expect you to come. And he introduces, says, this is my brother. He's, uh, he has a kolal in Israel. And I was like, okay. And he says, this is my other brother. This is his house. He lives in Long Island. And the brother says, yeah, you know, I'm, you know, and he points to his brother in Israel. He says, this brother's like teaching Torah and he's got a big, you know, position. And he looks at the cardiologist, says, this guy's saving lives. And I just count numbers. I'm a, I'm just a simple accountant. And my mother in her classic uh, view on things gave it to him over the head. And she says, I want you to know something. And she says to the brother with the long beard, she says, Mashiach's coming very soon and you're going to be out of a job. Because I hate to break it to you, you might know a lot of Torah. I'm going to Moshe Rabbeinu's school. I'm not coming to your kolo. And she looks at the cardiologist. She says, you're also out of business. Nobody needs you anymore. Right? Yeah, nobody's getting sick. And she looks at the accountant and says, you could count all the shkalim in the Beis HaMikdash. You'll be taking care of us. You'll take care of us long term. Right? Huh? Yeah, but that's her view. You know, she's like, don't like sell yourself short. You have the only long-term job here. You know, the rest of us, you know, when Mashiach comes, I'm out of a job. I'm the, there's bigger rabbis that are coming back. Then I'm like, all right, I'm going to your school. I'm not, sorry, everybody, but I'm not going to be teaching anymore. We're going to be learning from the best of the best, right? So it's, um, you, you, you view the Beis HaMikdash. It was a production. It was a production, right? We would show up and every Jew was comfortable and felt welcome. And by the way, this is also why when we go through the various blemishes that come up when describing the Kohen that's allowed to work in the base of Mikdash, there's certain blemishes that, that um, apostle, they, it disallows the Kohen from working, for example, and it's, it's, it's some strange ones, right? It says if a Kohen has uh, what they call a unibrow, 
if his two eyebrows connect across. Huh? Yeah, so certain parts of the world, people have more hair growing in different parts. So that's a, that's a mum. That's considered a mum. That's considered a, a, a blemish. And so on and so forth. A lot of them are, are on the outside. Some are, you know, uh, more on the private parts of the body. But, a lot, but it's, it's things that are, that are uh, noticeable. Prime, uh, if, if you'll see that. Even a left-handed person. I'm a southpaw. Right? If a person would do the avoda left-handed, they would be disqualified. It would be a mum. Now, you'd still work in the base amikdash, but you're not allowed to... You, you, would, you would be disqualified from the service. What's the reason for that? A mum, a blemish, doesn't... We, we, view, we translate it into English. Like, a blemish is problematic. Right? When we hear that word blemish, we hear the word uh, a problem. Like, there's a problem here. Agreed? When you hear that word, right? Last week we spoke about words. When you hear words, certain things. Blemish is like an issue. Also with the word tuma, like the word impurity. Also, like we find like it's an issue. And it's, it's really incorrect. There's, there's background reasons behind why something or a person becomes impure. And very often it has to do with holiness, like we've described many times. If there wouldn't be a holiness there, impurity wouldn't, wouldn't ever show up. By some of these blemishes, for example, being a left-handed coin that's considered a blemish. It doesn't mean something wrong with you, but anybody here left-handed? No, you're also left-handed? People notice it. I find people notice. I, I was just out of town, I'm renting a car, you pick up a pen, the signs of them, you're like, oh, you're a left-handed. I, I know that. <laughs> I've known that my whole life. I didn't like start today, right? Why are people noticing it? What are they, what are they mentioning it for? It's noticeable. Now, when things are noticeable, what that means is it's a distraction from the purpose of what's going on. And what's incredible about the Beis Hamikdash and the goings-on of the Beis Hamikdash is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted that any person who walks in, it flowed comfortably with no strange or different, even if it's not problematic, but nothing different to throw me off of the mission at hand. So people notice when somebody's left-handed, that's a, it's just going to be a distraction. If somebody has a strange eyebrow on their head, that also serves as a distraction. Again, is it a problem? Nothing wrong with you, it's not a problem. In the base of Mikdash itself, it's the wrong setting. It's the wrong setting for that. And I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. This is something that I find. I'll, you'll, you'll let me know if uh, if it's true with with you as well. Sometimes I'll listen to a lecture, and you have a very uh, the word is not smart. The word you have an academic or somebody with a very strong vocabulary start lecturing. And they use words that either I don't know what they mean or I know what they mean, but it's just not part of my daily language. It's a throw-off. It's a distraction. Now, sometimes, by the way, they need to use those words. It's the best words to bring out the idea that they're trying to share. It's not necessarily an issue, but... You understand what I'm saying? When people use words that we're just not familiar with, when we're not, it could be in a shir, it could be in a class, it could be in a lecture, it's a, it's a shtickle distraction. It's like a little bit of a, of a throw-off. The base of Huh? Shtickle, right. So, 
Yeah. So, so when the Beis Hamikdash wasn't a place for that, there, there's a time and place for it. There's a time and place for it. Otherwise, how are you ever going to learn, right? To keep this this idea going, by the way, to keep this everything in Torah is, has symmetry and is interconnected. This is why you can't learn Torah without the Oral Torah. You can't learn Torah without the Oral Torah. Why not? Picture yourself sitting and reading a book. And you come across words that you could figure out what they mean in context. I've done this. Yeah. I've done this from the pulpit. Okay? I come across a story and there's a word in the story. That's an important word. I've never heard it spoken before. I do know what it means. Okay? Um... You could, you could, let's say you read the word heretic. Okay? Somebody who doesn't have Torah Shebaal Peh, doesn't have the oral Torah, will read it. If you just have things on paper, but you don't have a Rebbe who you ever heard this from or learned it from, you could even be in front of you and you'll, you'll say heretic. Because it's heresy. So the emphasis is on the first syllable on heresy. So it should be Heretic, maybe. Or is it heretic? How do you know how to say it? By hearing. You always need to hear. You have to hear Torah. You can't just read Torah. That's the importance of coming together right, in a setting and to listen to others and to familiarize ourselves. We, we become familiar and comfortable with, with verbs and expressions and the way things are presented. And when it comes to Kedusha, what's incredible is, and the Beis HaMikdash and the Mishkan and the Kohen and the Kohen Gadol, there wasn't supposed to be anything that we were unfamiliar with. It was supposed to be like our home. This was our home. It's a familiar place. It's not something that's going to surprise us. Right? Again, continuing the idea of symmetry. A shul is a mikdash ma'at. It's a mini sanctuary. It's our responsibility to make sure that we're comfortable in this setting. And to make sure that other people are comfortable in this setting. Not to put things in that could be, uh, that could be a throw-off. I know... Uh, Initially, there were some people, never became, Baruch Hashem, we don't have difficult people uh, in, in our shul. We're, we're very, very blessed that, that I don't deal with a lot of the issues. Uh, yeah, so some people, they're very dramatic about everything, okay? But I'll give you one example. I had two people come over to me maybe a year or two after joining the shul that it's time that we don't have page numbers anymore. 90% of the people follow along. So what do you need a page number up front for? That's what they do in the conservative shuls. When people don't know. So I said, just you wait till slichos. <laughs> right? You're also going to be reform and conservative showing up one time a year for slichos. You don't know either. I said, that's A. B, what does it bother you if the other 10% know where we're up to? Who cares? Does it, does it matter? So you do it. It's a chesed. I don't care if there's nobody in the shul who needs it, or there's one person who needs it. Imagine you have a medical equipment gemach, medical equipment. Okay, you have wheelchairs and crutches and medicine or whatever in a community. You have a medical equipment gemach. Do people use it every day? No, but it's still a chesed that you have part of your house available as a as a gemach available for somebody. So I said, that's what this is. That's what this is. Who cares if you know what it is? And get over your, get over the way that you view a show with page numbers, and realize that this is just a chesed. And the one who's turning the pages is doing the chesed for others. Like why not? Like what's 
What does it hurt? What does it make it a place when a Jew walks in? They're not thrown off by the where am I in? Where do I sit? What do I do? What do? people come in? There's page numbers there. There's plenty of seats available. There's this. There's not. You come in. You can, you can figure it out very easily. The base Hamikdash had to be a place that had that vibe, that had that uh, that had a culture of just being comfortable. Nothing that that was that that would throw off um, uh, another year. So. As we go through Parshas Tetzaveh, I think that's something to keep an eye on. Something to keep an eye on, in addition to the, the specific mitzvahs of what the, um, what the culture of the Mishkan and the Beis HaMikdash was. Okay, let's just give a, a quick overview like we try to do each week of the, uh, a summary of the main points of the Parsha. So this week we broke it down into eight parts. The Parsha begins with the command to make olive oil which was going to be used for the menorah. The menorah is called the Ner Tamid. Interestingly, the word Tamid means consistent. Uh, shoals have a Ner Tamid, but it's important to know the menorah was not always lit. Menorah there was not always lit. It was not lit 24-7. The menorah was lit towards the evening. Okay? It was lit towards the evening, and it would, it would uh, go out by the morning. Okay? It, was lit, it was lit overnight. Which means the word tamid, and there's a beautiful idea brought out, uh, could mean always. The word tamid also means consistent. For example, the tamid offering means it was done daily, not the entire day. In the first verse of our parsha, it says the menorah was to be lit near tamid, constantly, consistently. But it doesn't mean it doesn't mean always. And there's a deeper message in this as well. And usually, I, I mean. I always say I'm not going to speak about each point as we go through it, right? Until let's let's go through all eight and then get back there. Should we just wait? All right, let's wait. Otherwise, I'm going to. All right, let's keep going. We'll get back to Menorah. What Talmud means? Point number first topic is the command. I can't control what The command to make uh, to crush the olive oil. Claudius soil is compared to olives as well. To kindle the lamps uh, continuously. The second part of the of the second main point of the parsha is the mitzvah to prepare unique garments for the kohanim and for the Kohen Gadol, what their garments were about. The third topic was instructions ahead of build the aphod, which is what the, um, the uh, what's called the breastplate that the Kohen Gadol wore with the tribes and the name on, on the breastplate and on the shoulders as well, where also people don't realize there's two stones on the shoulders. Each stone had six names of the tribes as well. So he, the, he really shouldered B'nai Yisrael and wore it over his heart. No, it was 12, and then 6 and 6, with the names again, same names, that, that he, that he, the Kohen Gadol wore on top of the shoulder. Uh, then the, the fourth point of the Parsha, it describes the chains and the rings and the 12 stones of the breastplate itself. It's also called the Urim Betumim. These 12 stones would give an element of prophecy. It, it wasn't clear prophecy. There were those in our history who made mistakes in understanding the most famous one that many of us know is a story with Chana. When yeah. she went to pray, right, there were three letters that lit up and Eli thought it said Shikr, which was drunk. Really, it meant Kusher, that she's fit and, and, a, and a proper woman. But uh, he misread the, the um, message of the, of the uh, Choshen, which is called the Urim Betum. Urim Betum means it, it gave clarity to those who... who um, requested messages from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And then the parsha goes through the clothes of a regular Kohen, what he wore on his head, and the, the robes and the pants. 
the sixth main point describes the commandment to sanctify a Kohen. And it also goes through the order of the sacrifices that took place. There was seven days of inauguration of the Mishkan. Um, and that was all part of, uh, of, of um, sanctifying a Kohen. This is uh, just a fascinating idea that we still have till today. You should know there's a custom when it comes to benching. So if there's a Kohen around, we give it to a Kohen. What's incredible is, what we don't know is, what do we think? Give it to the Kohen. Why? He's above. Huh? He's above. Is he the biggest scholar in the room? Not necessarily so. He's a priest. He's a priest. But for some reason, so it says in the Torah that the Kiddashto, there's a biblical mitzvah to sanctify a Kohen, which means, this is a beautiful thing, every time we're together in any setting, Torah reading setting, a um, uh, sitting at a meal, and we ask a Kohen to lead, every single one of us fulfills a biblical mitzvah. We get rewarded for that. That's why we do it. It's an opportunity for a mitzvah. It says, sanctify a Kohen, elevate a Kohen. So you know why we give it to a Kohen? That's my mitzvah. <laughs> That's it. It's my mitzvah. So every time the Kohen leads, why not? It's like the same Kohen all the time, like the same two guys are leading it, right? Give it to somebody else. What are they? They're going to get bored of it. Why don't you give somebody else? Give up an opportunity for a mitzvah? What does that mean? Like, a, you know, I already gave Tzedakah yesterday. I'm going to do it again. Right? I prayed yesterday. I'm going to do it again. I did a chesed yesterday. But yeah, but kidash though. Like it's, it's easy peasy. This is, this is a no-brainer. Now, 150 people get a mitzvah because one Kohen is leading it. Like, farvas nisht. Why not? Uh, why aren't we doing this? It's a command to sanctify Aaron and his children. That's the sixth point of the parsha. The seventh point is the mitzvah of the tamid offering in the morning and in the afternoon. And the eighth point and final point is the mitzvah of making the mizbeach to offer up the incense, to offer up the katiras in um, in places of of holiness. Okay, so those are the eight uh, eight primary points of the parsha. And without further ado. Let's uh, let's start going through the psukim. Here we go. About the importance of it being part of their name. We'll, we'll talk, that's a very important idea. And make sure I come back to that. Yeah. No, it did not. Correct. The Levium worked in the base Hamikdash. They were what we will call employees of the base Hamikdash. They didn't do the actual service. Of the offerings or things of that sort. So a Kohen, a, a levy that let's say had a unibrow was permitted to sing Shira in the Beis Hamikdash and still ran the other part. It's only, it's only at the time of the actual offering. You, you should know, even the Kohanim who were left-handed, they worked in the Beis Hamikdash. There was plenty to do. It was a whole enterprise. Um, they just weren't there at the time of the, of the actual avodah. Okay. So now you should command the Bnei Yisrael. And take for you. Take for you. Hashem's telling Maisha, take for you. This is interesting. Remember last week we focused on truma. It says, V'yichu li. Right? Take for me. This is interesting that it says, V'yichu elecha. That here, taking for yourself. There's, there's a on this. Shemen zayizach. What are you taking for yourself? Crushed, pressed, olive oil, kasas lama'ar, pure for kindling. Rashi explains there's three parts to the, there's different stages of, Olive growth, and then there's different stages of olive pressing. We're dealing with the purest of the pure oil, was what was used for the menorah. 
to light the lamp continuously. Okay, I want to focus now on two specific continuously. Not continuously. Yeah, what's the difference? Well, continually would be with stops. It's maybe most of the time, but not all the time. That's continue, continually. Continuously is constant. So this is continually. Continually. Thank you. Beautiful. Continually means happening, but with stops. Very good. Thank you so much. Um, two parts of the verse to, to touch on. Number one is va'ato. Hashem sp- speaks to Moshe and he says, you. So a big idea that you're going to hear or you're going to read as you go through Parshat Tetzava is Moshe's name is not mentioned in this entire portion. Parshat Tetzava, from the time that we're introduced to him at birth until the end of the Torah, this is the only Parsha his name is not mentioned. So I want to focus on that. Other thing I want to focus on is Lahalos Ner Tamid, that this is a, the menorah should be lit, continua, lit continually, um, and it's using the word Tamid. Tamid really means sometimes often, sometimes constant. And there's ways that the uh, Chachamim teach us how to know which, uh, what's what. But it is strange that the word, same word is used for, the, for these two things. Now practically speaking, the word Tamid is very important to understand that it means continually, as opposed to continuously. I really appreciate that. I did not know this until just now. But that's a great way to, for me to use these words to phrase it like that. Because one of the truths of living as a Torah Jew is we live in a state of constant contradiction. Okay? We are besimcha, we are secure, we are happy, we're given the beauty of Judaism, and we are in pain that there's soldiers now in Gaza. We're, there's people putting their, their lives on the line. We'll discuss soon. May, maybe, I don't know, but similar to Maisha Rabbeinu losing his name, which we'll get to in this week's Parsha. So I want to say, I want to get back to this. He lost his name in this week's Parsha. And there's people going through health difficulties, relationship difficulties, all kinds of tzaras, just all of us sitting around the table right now. We got stuff. We got stuff we're dealing with. And at the same time, we woke up this morning. And we're breathing. And we're able to understand Torah. And we're come here to learn. And we come here to eat. And Hashem gives us delicious food. And when you understand greatness, and when we, we understand Hashem, and when we understand that a yid, we're constantly living. This is why we're all like, woo. This is why our, and people who, are, who have sensitive neshamas have a very difficult time with this. Because... These are these, it's like a constant contradiction I'm living in. And they're all overlapping and compartmentalizing all these things. But this is the metzias. It's a metzias, which means it's a, it's a reality of living a life with Hashem. Living a life with Hashem. Where there's Hashem, Hashem is good, and Hashem is always taking care of us, and we're in Hashem's arms, and we're secure in this knowledge. With that security, we're like, but this, and but that, and but this, and... Uh, so this is what's incredible about the word tamid, meaning continual as opposed to continuous. And that is, there's a pasuk from David HaMelech, 
he says, V'chatasi lefanai tamid. My sins are in front of me tamid. Continually. How am I supposed to do tshuva? Rambam says you regret, you express, you say vidoy about my regret, and I accept sincerely for the future. People say, oh, but what if you know you're going to do it again? It doesn't, okay, I'm sincere. I don't want to do it again. I really don't want to. Okay? I don't want to hurt my relationship with God. It doesn't matter if I know I can control myself. These are three steps to tshuva. Now, when King David, Dabramel says, my sins are in front of me, tamid, this means continual, not continuous. You can't live a life of constant regret. You will not function. You can't live a life of, I'm a terrible person. That is, that's terrible. We learned a few years ago when we started Bolvavi that one of the greatest charms of the evil inclination is to get us to live decades of our lives or years of our lives or days of our lives obsessed with our failures. So I have a lot of things that I'm weak in either in my midos, my relationship with Hashem, which midos very much is part of as well, or in other areas. I got a lot of areas of, of weakness and most people find that as you go through life, there's going to probably be two or three things that keep coming back to nagas. Two areas of weakness. And pick your favorite two, because that's probably what it is. Okay? Pick your favorite one. Two. Your favorite two areas of weakness that they keep coming back. Okay, whatever. Just pick it. Negativity, Lashonara, this, that, Mitzvah, Kashrus, Chavis, whatever. Pick it. There's plenty. 613. <laughs> plenty. I got plenty. But it's going to be a few that keep nagging at us and keep giving us our Jewish guilt. Keep coming back. The Yitzhahara does this. Why? Because he knows that we as sincere people, and this, is, I'm, 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 th- this happens to sincere people. If you're not sincere, it won't really matter. A sincere person knows, I've got failures, I have weaknesses, and, and for some reason it's constant, I can't shake it. I can't shake it. And what happens over there in such a setting is we have a mansion, a beautiful mansion of life, of good deeds, areas of success. And we have so much to take pride in. I, I could guarantee each of us here, you have already done hundreds of mitzvahs by 1.20 p.m. Probably in the thousands. Yeah, probably in the thousands. Just every second that we're learning Torah is a mitzvah. Every second is a mitzvah. You wake up in the morning and you're grateful. I mean, we have hundreds. You have to make a blessing. Every word, every letter, every this. Every hundreds and hundreds, hundreds of mitzvahs. But we don't, we don't think about it. You know what we're thinking of? Oh, I spoke Lashon Hara again. And, and that, that sits on us. It sits on us. And that's the same as, says the Bovavi, again, going back a few years, he says that's similar to somebody owning a beautiful home and they can't appreciate it because there's one door that won't stop squeaking. So you stand by the door and you're spraying WD-40 for years. And it's like, gosh, would you go away? Would you stop squeaking? And meanwhile, you got a beautiful house that's there. 
There's floors, there's a comfortable bed, there's things that we've built up in our lives. Baruch Hashem, every person's done that. Every person, we, we all have beautiful things to take pride in and to appreciate. But we get, we get for some reason, we just st- stare at that squeaky door like we're obsessed. Completely, completely hung up on it. And, and, that, and that impacts and actually ends up creating a negative association with Hashem and with the general mitzvahs. When there's so much, there's so much generosity that we've done. There's so many words of kindness that we've, that we've obviously, there's a, and then, but we find, but this is all, mamish the Yitzhahara. Why? Because Yitzhahara says like this, look at the Rambam, Maimonides, psh, yeah, nobody, none of us arguing on that, right? He says, the Rambam says, you got to regret it. You know what I'm going to make you do? Tell me, you're going to regret it your whole life, continuously. <laughs> continuously. There's going to be a squeaky door. Uh, 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 uh. And says, Davra Melech, B'chatasi lefanai, my sins are in front of me continually. You know what continually means? Once a day. <laughs> you light the menorah once a day. In the afternoon, before you go to bed, you say, Hashem, if I did anything wrong, or I know I did something wrong, I regret it. I regret it. That's it. I want to repair my relationship with you. That's it. You lit the menorah. I get in tug, go to sleep. Sleep shluf gezont. Sleep well. Right? That's, that's what tamid means. That's why it's important to know what Tamid is, you know, we, we, we have this issue because the Ner Tamid in the Shul is like always lit. Tamid could mean like always, but very often Tamid just means, you know, continually, at times. At times. Don't forget it. Don't be, don't stick, you know, they say, what is the. Oh, my nephew just told me this joke over Shabbos. Who's the most. He said, what's the most naive animal? I said, I don't know. He said, an ostrich always has its head in the sand. I said, oh, that's a good one. It's a good one. You always have your head in the sand, right? So, it's not saying to have your head in the sand and to ignore it and to say, oh, it's not a big deal. No, okay. But I realize, you know, again, we're sincere. We try once a day. Once a day. You can't live your life. It's a hard, if we live our life full of guilt, I'm telling you that is not holy. It is not your Yetzir Tov doing that. It's your Yetzir doing that. Our Yetzir Tov teaches us how to be in a healthy relationship with HaKadosh Baruch. Teaches us how to be healthy with ourselves. How to be healthy with Yiddishkeit. Yiddishkeit is not a strain. It's not a struggle. That's not what it is. It's, it gives beauty. It gives meaning. It gives, it, it gives a, a, a path. It makes it simple. It, it, the Torah is here to make it simple. We say all the time, the ways of the Torah are pleasant. It's here to be pleasant. It's not here to be a burden and be a weight. Tamid, we have to understand, says the Pasuk, the Menorah was Tamid. And when was it lit? Once. That's it. Lit once, and, that, and, the, the, and the, the Kahanim were done the Abayda. Right? They left. That's the idea, that's the idea of Tamid. I'm sorry? Shivisi Hashem Lenegni Tamid. That is always. Correct. That Tamid, that Tamid is always. There's different ways to understand. That's a very good Ha'ara. There's a few other Psukim as well where Tamid does mean, uh, does mean consistently. But those who involve themselves in grammar, and it's going to take us about a half hour to, to uh, solidify each of those. Suffice it to say that the message is Tamid does not have to mean always. It doesn't have to mean always. And the proof is from right here. Proof's from right here. And, and also the seventh topic of our parsha is the is the um, the carbon atomid. The carbon atomid was brought once in the morning, and that was called tamid. 
Yeah. So, so what you're saying is we, what we're doing at the end of the day is we're acknowledging what we've done, but we're not reliving it. We're acknowledging that, okay, this happened, but it's not going to be something that you're going to dwell on it, and, and therefore it's, it, it doesn't leave you. I mean, when you acknowledge something, you, you, you say it, and yes, I did this, and finished. If you're using the, the word dwell the way I think you are, then I think yes. I, um, um, if you can't let it go, if you can't, if it's always yeah. going to... If dwelling on it means not letting it go, like then a that's a problem. And it's that's a problem. going to be there. That's, yeah. yeah, I think, uh, I'll tell you where I'm not all in on that psychology, okay, on no, no, that psychological, that mental approach, I'll call it, for me personally is because currently the way that my my personal mind takes in this idea of mechila, of, of uh, regretting something and getting forgiveness, is that, and again, you know, Baruch Hashem, the, the, we each have the avayda, the service to, hopefully in five months from now I'll say I made a mistake and I know more now. Right? I'm just, the way I currently understand it. The way to truly ask for mechila. Okay, now, this is going to be different than regret, so just wait. I'm going to bring it around. If I ask forgiveness from you, I think it's my duty to not just say I'm sorry. That's a very American thing. Mechila is to really try to picture myself how you felt. And once I'm able to do that, once I'm able to at least do part of that as much as I can, the asking for forgiveness is a very natural thing. It's not something that's forced. It's, of course I don't want that. But I'm right, that's a real mechila. But I'm, I'm thinking of asking forgiveness of yourself. Okay, very good. So, right, 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 right. So I'm, I just want to paint that picture of how I picture a true, a true forgiveness is, and this is how you become one with something, is to, to picture you. I, I said hurtful words, not to just regret that I hurt you. I feel bad that I hurt you. One should do that. But real regret is when, and this is why Hashem made an imagination. It's an incredible thing. Every child is born with a crazy imagination. You, so you look at these kids, you're like, dude, you're nuts. You're crazy. They, they like live in G.I. Joe world. They live in Ninja Turtle world. They, I'm probably dating myself, I don't know. Right? They live like wild, and they're like in it. Mamish, and how could this Baruch who made us? And for some reason, we as adults like tell the kids to cut it out, right? It's a problem. The Baruch made us, we're born with imaginations because that's how you live in the present. You, you need to use imagination to fully grasp how could this Baruch right? To, to know there's something that truly exists without a physical thing. It's using an imagination. When, when I have to ask for forgiveness from somebody, it's, an, it's my responsibility, it's my duty to use my imagination. Nothing, it never happened to me. Okay, so now, so now stop. Be present, be thoughtful. So what, what do you, how do, if, if, I would, if I would be in your space, in your place, and that was said to me, use my imagination. Ooh, that hurt. Okay, let me go ask Mechila. Right, that hurts. That hurt. That's a real Mechila. Now again, if I can't do that, some people don't have a strong imagination and it's already been like pushed out. Whatever. Okay, still got to ask for forgiveness. 
But to get back to a place of oneness and to really, like, it's just like, asking to me is like secondary. Right? You understand what I'm saying? It's like, it's an offshoot of, of, the, of what really needs to be done. Rav Palm would say, in a similar term, the cure to Lashon Hara is not by shutting your mouth. The cure to Lashon Hara is by changing your heart. And if you think differently, your mouth will shut. Right? If, you, if we just don't talk, that's curing the symptom, not the problem. So too over here. So too over here. Like the way to cure the thing that I've done is to use an imagination, put myself in that place, which I think that's why I'm a little hesitant with the word dwelling. I think you do need to dwell a little bit. Like at the end of the day, what I would like to envision for myself, and again, I might be wrong with this, but this is currently what I need to do in my own life. If I'm making a chesh ben I'm, at the end of the day, you know, did I waste time today? Did I say something? Could I, could I have done something? Uh, could I have done something better? I think you do need to dwell on it at that time. So it's not reliving it. I think you do need to dwell and put yourself in, a, in certain places and in, in like a space of, of feeling. Like, do I, do I want to be in a place where, let's say I did something, let's, certainly to people, that's the easiest to hurt. To hurt. Um, Let's talk about if, if I'm sincere in a relationship with Hakadosh Baruch When Hashem asks me not to do something, He says, "Tell her don't, don't go there. Don't listen to this. If you're in a setting where people are talking, leave." And, and, and you stayed. And I feel like, you know what? I could have done better. I could have done better with that. So, I think in, in that setting, what I would do is to to, to feel bad. The same way I, if somebody, one of my friends or one of my family members would ask me to not do something and I do it and it hurt my relationship with them, right? I, I, why did I put that before my relationship with them? That's how, I, that's how I feel. You know, I want to have a relationship with Hashem. He asked me not to. I just did it. So I feel bad. But I, I, I put something in the way of my relationship with him. That does take a little bit of dwelling. That's, but once I'm done, I'm done. You know, once you've done that, you feel bad, and then, and then you're on to the next day. Well, that's why. That's, some people aren't on to the next day. That's what I'm saying. That there's still <laughs> right. So you, you got to move on. Dwelling. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta. And, and this is one of the questions that I have not gotten an answer to. It's one of my most delicious questions, and I still don't have an answer. This might be part of the answer, and that is why Hashem made it that we're supposed to sleep a third of our lives. We're only here for a certain amount of years, and you're supposed to be unconscious for a third of it. I don't. I can't make sense of that. Um, but that's me. It obviously makes sense. I can't make sense of it, but one of the things that does come out, and one of the beautiful things about sleep and nighttime, is always tomorrow. You don't live your life continuously. You live your life continually. There's always tomorrow. Tomorrow's another day. You, you went to sleep. Besides, I know there's more. The brain works stronger when we're sleeping, and there's, uh, and there's a lot of benefits, and there's, there's grace. I'm, you know, I just wonder why, why it can't be five minutes. You know, do that in five minutes or whatever. It's just interesting to me. I'm, uh, it's interesting. You clean the slate if you're, yeah, you're, your neshama goes up to Shemayim. Yeah, it's purified and it comes down. Yeah, um, there's reasons. I just this is one of the questions that I've gotten. I've gotten some answers, and uh, I'm fine. I just it's one of my favorite questions. Like, I, I love I love like being bothered by things. I don't know yeah, if it help, but our brains are seventy five percent unconscious. When we're awake. When, no, when we're asleep. When we're asleep. 75%. This is 3% that we think of the brain. Uh-huh. That's true. So you have more consciousness. Yes. When you're... You more unconscious. Conscious. When? When you're up or sleeping? 75% is, is the subconscious. 
of the, of the unconscious. Three percent is our brain that we think of. When we're awake or when we're sleeping? When we're awake. Three percent. Yeah? <laughs> it's a problem, but yeah. You know, there's a man joke, and then we'll go on with this. There's a, you know, there's, uh, there's a joke about this. Uh, they came up with a brain transplant. You're familiar with this joke? This is a, this is a good old Jewish joke. So they, they, they finally figured out a brain transplant, and some, some uh, altayid, some elderly uh, Jewish man, was going to be the first in line to have this done. So the family gets very excited. You know, the father's, you know, unfortunately, he's laying there. Uh, hooked up and he's brain dead and they're going to get a, a new brain. So the doctor comes in and he tells the kids, he says, uh, all right, Baruch Hashem, we have a brain available for him and you have to choose. Do you want a male brain or a female brain? So they say, uh, well, how much does it cost? What's the difference in price? <laughs> so he said, well, the male brain is $100,000 and the female brain is $50,000. So all the boys start smirking. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and the daughters are very defiant. Like, well, why is a female brain, you know, uh, fifty thousand dollars? The doctor says because it's used. <laughs> it's used. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he reminded me of that when you said our brains are three percent, three percent used. But that's uh, the male brain. Uh, you know, it's still new. It's still new. All right, bite there. Here we go. <laughs> Here we go. All right. Fine. So, so that's the holiday start talking. Now let's focus a little bit on Va'ata. So it's very interesting that Maishu Rabbeinu's name is left out of the Parsha. Now the reason why it's left out of the Parsha is actually Moshe Rabbeinu himself says this, get ready, in next week's Parsha. It's very interesting. In next week's Parsha, in Parsha's Kisisa, so we have the sin of the, the, the Chate Egal, the sin of the golden calf. And Hashem says, it's going to be, I'm going to wipe out the people. Amayish Rabbeinu says, the, not over my dead body. Not happening. You get rid of them, you get, Hashem says, I'm going to wipe them out, I'll start with you. Amayish Rabbeinu says, nothing to talk about. He says, Machini no misifrecha. If they're gone, wipe me out from misifrecha, from your safer. Okay? Which basically means, get rid of the whole terror, get rid of everything. It's, uh, it's all of us or none of us. That's what Amayish Rabbeinu says. Now when a tzaddik says something, part of it has to be completed. It has to be, uh, there's truth to every expression that a tzaddik says. So now, even though HaKadosh Baruch Hu didn't wipe out Klai Yisrael because of Maishu Rabbeinu's shepherding of his flock and standing up for us, something had to happen because Maishu Rabbeinu said, erase me, mi sefrecha, from your sefer. <clears throat> so, what they did, so what Hashem did is He took Maishu Rabbeinu's name and He erased him, mi sefrecha. If you break up the word sefrecha, it's sefer chaf, which is the 20th book. The Chaf is 20. The 20th Parsha of the Torah is Tetzav. Okay? So Maishu says, Erase me, Misifrecha. Hashem says, okay. If a Tzadik, there's so much purity to the words of a Tzadik, something true has to happen. I'm going to take your name out of Parsha's Tetzav. So the one Parsha in the Torah that does it at Maisha is, is, uh, is, is Tetzav. Now, the Bali Musr teach us, that there's, two, there, there's two specific Musrs I want to focus on. Okay, maybe this will take us to the end. I don't know. There's two specific muscles I want to want to share. One I shared a number of years ago, actually at the Chaver Kadisha dinner. It was downstairs in the Aguda. I forgot who says this idea, and he says this is such a, a pure and uh, and holy um, concept. Very deep. You got to be present with this. This this foundational. Sometimes. 
and will say oftentimes. The greatest eulogy you could give to somebody is by saying nothing. And I don't mean by eulogy like at the grave. What I mean is praise. Defining somebody's life. Defining somebody's life. Sometimes saying nothing is the greatest thing you could say. Because once you start, you're just limiting it. You're limiting it. Jew, Jewish tombstones generally do not have a lot written on them. For this reason. The more you say, the more you leave out. The more you say, the more you leave out. Now listen to this. One of the ways that we as people know if we're in a good relationship is during the quiet moments. Some people, not some people, if you don't have a relationship with somebody, sitting side by side with them in silence is awkward, as they say in high school. Awkward silence. You walk into an elevator, there's another person or two next to you, and you're all just standing there looking at the floor. You're just awkward. What am I going to do? Catch up on 70 years of life with somebody? And like, what am I going to say? Hey, 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 hey. Right? Good morning, good afternoon, good this. And then you just stand there in awkward silence. Because I'm not doing you. So that silence is weird. When you have a good friend, good friend, one of the greatest places to know that you're in a solid place with them is when you could actually be sitting in the same room and say nothing. And you're both fine. We don't need to talk. Either we're both reading our book. We're doing our thing. Just quiet. That's how I know, like, it's solid. Understand? This is a, a, such a, a, it, it's a... It's a little bit of a measuring rod to, for ourselves sometimes to know if you're in a good place with somebody. You know, if you're, like, sitting with them and it's just, like, the silence is, like, tearing at something, that's, that means, like, I got work to do. If you're like comfortable in silence, it's actually a beautiful place. Words don't always need to be spoken. A lack of words, which means a lack of words very often speaks so much, speaks volumes. The same thing holds true with, with uh, this week's, with Maish Rabbeinu's name. Same thing holds true with Maish Rabbeinu's name. And this is going to get into names. Let's get into names. A name creates a it, it creates a definition of something creates a, a definition of somebody Moshe became so by him saying Hashem if you get rid of Klal Yisrael that means you're getting rid of me meant we don't need to talk about Moshe he is the Parsha I don't need to say Moshe in his name he is everything about the Tzavah it's Maish Rabbeinu. Which, by the way, what do you mean? It's about the Kahanim. You know who was going to originally be the Kahan? Maish Rabbeinu. And he gave it over to his brother. And he had no problem with Aaron having any of And he did the seven days of Meluam. He did all the preparation. And then Aaron comes along on the opening day. And he's the... Uh, but we don't need to mention Maisha. The, the greatest praise you could give to Maisha is by saying, Maisha, I'm not even saying your name. We're quiet with your name. This is you. This is, this is you. This is like what it's... You know, this is just what it's all about. And this, you know, there's people who, who 
at moments in their lives or in our lives, you get to a place like this. You get to a, a, a place where it's, it's healthy in that fashion. So that's one very important musr to take from Ayesha's name not being mentioned and a message. A musr means like a, a guidance, but also a message in not being, learning how to become one with something. Learning how to become one with something means I don't even need to be mentioned in it. I don't need to be mentioned. This, however, has a downside. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what the downside in my life is. Um, you know those people, and I come from circles where this is very common. I was told this by a lot of people who I respect and continue to respect. But I'll tell you where I'm not on their level of this. It's the people who don't want to celebrate Thanksgiving because every day is Thanksgiving. You ever heard people say that? You. Or the people who don't want to celebrate Father's Day or Mother's Day because every day is Father's Day or Mother's Day. See, here's the response. Okay? The response is, if every day I would call my mom and say, I really appreciate you, gesinte hate, you could say that expression. But if I don't do that the whole year, there's a reason why it was put into culture. You know why? Because most people don't. So at least I now I have an excuse or a reminder to go do that. So if I say every day is Thanksgiving, so I'm not going to appreciate that Hashem gave me the greatest country of kindness in the history of the Jews while we're in exile, while we're in Golos. Every day is Thanksgiving. I'm going to thank Hashem for every day. If you really do that, givaldik. Okay, kalakavod. But if you use that as an excuse to do nothing, I don't agree with you. Don't use it as an excuse to never appreciate your mom. Don't use it as an excuse to not be thankful for things because oh, I do it. Okay, it, again, if you do it every day, I allow you to make this statement. I'll allow myself. I'm not that type of person. So you have days like this, which says, okay, Mother's Day, I appreciate my mom. Father's Day, I, appreciate, I, I, I could uh, appreciate my dad. I'll throw something interesting in here, how we could utilize this in the world of Tyra. And that is that... I don't have my parents anymore. But it's still worthwhile using, and again, we should do this every day, but it's worthwhile using reminders of day like that to still send them a package in Shemayim. Send them a package. Do some chasadim, give, give some tzedakah, say something, do some, do, you know, be better in their merit from their values. That's incredible. Keep it up, aim. Rav Pam, Zechariah Lebracha would say, we have greater opportunity for respecting our parents when they're gone than when they're here. Because when they're here, we can only respect them physically. And what if I live in a different town? I couldn't respect my dad. I, when, I mean, I could talk to him nicely. But when I moved to St. Louis, in the first few years, I had the merit to have him uh, with me in the world. But I wasn't in the same place with him. He was living in Baltimore. I'm living here. I couldn't serve him. I couldn't do anything. But now that he's in Shemayim, I could be doing chesed. I could be... I could be uh, learning Torah, I could be sending him packages, I could be saying things and following in his values, and that's sending them care packages in Shemayim, that's keep it aim too. It doesn't stop once our parents are gone. It doesn't stop. So on Mother's Day and Father's Day and all, all these other days, we should, we should take advantage of these opportunities. But that's the idea of the Atta, is not that Moshe is being punished by saying, oh, take me out of your, take me out of your Torah. Hashem says, well, I gotta say, you, did, you said that and I need to make that happen, so now I got a problem. It's actually the greatest eulogy you can give. The greatest you give my Shabbat. That's point one. 
point two, another message that I'm pers- that you know I, I personally take from this, is that when did Maishavena say this? I'm fascinated by this. When did Maishavena say, "Erase me from your safer"? And we'll end with this next week. Kisisa. When are we taking him out? This week. It's the last possible option to take him out. Which means Hashem says to Maisha, listen, you said erase me. I'm going to have to do something. Right? A tzaddik says, I'm going to have to do something. But I'm not going to... Hashem's like, eh, sometimes like you got to... You, you wait and you wait and you procrastinate, procrastinate. Now it's like tzaddik. You're back. Like next week, Maisha Rabbeinu, you said, like, what am I supposed to do? Like my hands are tied. I got to take you out now. No, it's like the last possible week. We went around the whole cycle of Torah. Now I'm sure I got to take, yeah. The beauty of this, the beauty of this message is that there's a, there's a precious midah in this. There's a precious midah in this. And that is, sometimes we need to do things that are a little bit harsh. Whether as an employer, a family member, as a friend or whatever. Sometimes you got to take a stand in something or face, you know, in, in some way that has to be true. We should do it with hesitancy. We should be very hesitant. Sometimes it needs to be done. There's nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. It's proper. It's proper to wait. Not in a way. Not a way to wait that's unfair to somebody. But it's proper to wait and just be, give an element of, of hesitancy to something. You know, I'm just thinking of myself as a teacher when I when I was, you know, contemplating this idea. I was thinking like as a teacher, I had the merit to be in the classroom for seven years. Um, when somebody doesn't do well, let's say on a test, or how do you give the grade? How's it expressed? How's it given over? Is it like here, boom, work on it, or is it like, minus. huh? A minus. A minus. No, or, no I'm not saying the way it's written, but it could be, it could be done in a way where you know handing it back at the same time with everybody who did well. You say to the student, you know, uh, I'm not going to give you a test back right now. We'll talk about it, talk to you about it tomorrow. You know, you know, you talk to you about it tomorrow. And tomorrow you sit down with them and say, you know, you really didn't do well. I, I have to give you this grade. I'm forced to. Maybe you want to do better. I'm not saying how to do it. You got to use your, there has to be seich, there has to be common sense involved. But anytime there's a harshness of coming down on somebody, a necessary one, Hashem didn't say ignore it. Hashem didn't ignore it. But he, there, was, there was a hesitancy in it. And there's a beautiful mida to being hesitant with our harshness. It's a beautiful mida. It's something, it's something also that I think is a message that we're waiting all the way till Pashas Tetzavah. Okay, we'll hold it here. Any uh, 